This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. It's not at all uncommon for a patient to see their primary care provider after they've discovered an enlarged lymph node. It often causes some anxiety and raises the fears that it represents some serious illness. Fortunately, in most cases, it's due to a benign cause and most patients can be reassured once we perform a careful history and physical exam. However, on occasion, lymphadenopathy can represent serious disease and to help us sort out how we should evaluate these patients, we have as our guest today, Dr. Carrie Thompson, a hematologist from the Mayo Clinic. Welcome, Carrie. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning. Well, you know, patients do come in to the office and they've discovered a lump. It's usually a lymph node and they're worried. They're worried that this represents a malignancy. So what does the literature say regarding the prevalence of malignancy in patients who seek a medical evaluation for lymphadenopathy? Yeah, it's interesting. As a subspecialist lymphoma physician, I think my percentage is much higher. But for those seeking care from a primary care physician, first evaluation for lymphadenopathy, the prevalence of malignancy is only 2%, meaning that you know, 98% of patients with lymphadenopathy have a benign cause. So I think that's pretty reassuring. Yeah. So right off the bat, we know the number is small. And uh, I think we can usually figure out that it's a benign cause based on talking with the patient and examining them. But how do you categorize diseases which can have, you know, associated lymphadenopathy? Yeah, there's a lot of different diseases that can lead to lymphadenopathy. I really like the mnemonic Miami that helps us categorize these different causes of lymphadenopathy. So M is malignancy. So that's, of course, lymphoma is one of them, leukemia, but also solid tumors that metastasize to the lymph nodes and, and others can cause enlarged nodes. Next is I for infection, which is a big one that probably causes the vast majority of lymphadenopathy. And that can be really any kind of infection. It can be bacterial, it can be viral, it can be granulomatous or other. So very wide uh, differential in that group. A is autoimmune. And that's one that as a lymphoma physician, I actually see fairly frequently from the associated inflammatory state, the lymph nodes will become enlarged. Very common with uh, rheumatoid arthritis or lupus or really any autoimmune disorder can cause that. The second M is miscellaneous. We always have to have a miscellaneous in, in any mnemonic, but the ones to consider in that category are two that I think are important. Sarcoidosis. Certainly you think about the hilar lymph nodes, but there's the lymph nodes really anywhere in the body can be involved with sarcoid. And then Castleman's disease is, is another one that we can see. And then last I is iatrogenic. And the big one here is medications. There's a, a host of different medications that can lead to lymphadenopathy. And I always think of the neurology medications, the anti-epilepsy drugs that are common causes of lymphadenopathy. All right. Very nicely done. I haven't, I hadn't heard that uh, mnemonic for some time, but it brought back some memories of studying for my boards. <laughs> so where are the palpable lymph nodes? Where do they, where do the patients find them? Where do we typically find them on exam? 
Yeah, I think most commonly patients will find cervical adenopathy uh, because it's very accessible. In men, it's often found when shaving or in the shower. Also, cervical lymph nodes are oftentimes affected by respiratory illnesses, which of course are so common. That being said, patients can also palpate inguinal lymphadenopathy and sometimes axillary lymphadenopathy, although I think axillary adenopathy is a little bit harder to find unless it's of pretty good size. Yeah, and I think all of those are common and often due to benign causes. I think the only location I can think of that would be kind of an ominous location would be a supraclavicular lymph node. I don't know a lot of good things that come from finding one of those. Yeah, exactly. That actually is one of the red flags for malignancy is a supraclavicular location. And that's where lung cancers tend to travel. For example, Hodgkin lymphoma or non-Hodgkin lymphoma tends to go to the supraclavicular nodes, but it's not an area that really is um, affected by upper respiratory infections. Yeah. Well, what are the characteristics of a benign enlarged node? Yeah, generally the lymph node will be fairly small in size. We consider normal anything up to one centimeter. So a benign lymph node, a reactive lymph node can be larger, but anything bigger than I would say two and a half centimeters tend to raise my suspicion a little bit more. Generally, uh, these lymph nodes that are reactive feel fairly soft. They should, should be freely mobile. If they're very firm or if they're fixed, that generally indicates something malignant and, and sometimes that's more indicative of a solid tumor metastases, those soft, firm fixed lymph nodes. Right. And then the last thing is if they're reactive, they may be tender in nature as well because of the stretching of the capsule that happens relatively quickly with an infectious cause, as opposed to a malignant process causing adenopathy. Generally, those lymph nodes aren't too painful. So is tenderness a good sign? Is that more leaning on the benign? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, tenderness is is more consistent with a, a benign reactive cause of adenopathy. What are some of the other characteristics of uh, benign lymph nodes? The location is also something that's really important. So if you have one location, say the cervical lymph nodes, that's more likely to be benign than as we talked about the supraclavicular lymph nodes or somebody who has lymph nodes in multiple locations. Let's say you palpate cervical, axillary, and inguinal. That's indicative of a systemic process. It doesn't necessarily mean malignancy, it could be infection or it could be sarcoidosis or, or an autoimmune cause, but certainly that an infection usually just affects that one area of the draining lymph nodes. So that can be very helpful as well. How about medications? Are there any medications which can be associated with lymphadenopathy? There sure are. There's a whole list of medications and I'm going to share with you some of those categories. I already mentioned the anti-seizure medications, such as phenytoin, but there's a, a number of antibiotics. Penicillin itself can lead to that. Some blood pressure medications, including ACE inhibitors like atenolol, captopril, Bactrim can cause it, allopurinol, which um, is used fairly frequently for gout, and then hydralazine, I didn't mention also as another antihypertensive that can 
lead to adenopathy. You know, obviously any medication honestly can lead to lymphadenopathy depending on if the patient has a significant allergic reaction to the medication. But the list that I just shared are the ones that are more commonly associated with lymphadenopathy in the literature. All right. Well, let's look at the other side of things. When should we be worried? What are the characteristics of a lymph node that's associated with a malignancy? Yeah, there's a couple of red flags to consider as risk factors. And it's not just the physical exam of the lymph node itself. I think really taking a good history from the patient and looking at exposures as well as other characteristics are really helpful. So first thing is age. You know, a younger patient is much more likely to have a reactive cause of lymphadenopathy or benign as opposed to somebody who is older. One study considers age 40 as a cutoff, and I think that's reasonable, although certainly if, if I'm seeing a patient who's age 70 or higher, that's going to be a higher risk of malignancy as, of course, cancer is more common in, in older patients. Another piece of the history that's really important is how long has that lymph node been palpable? How long has the patient noticed it? Because any one of these causes of benign lymphadenopathy is usually something that's short-lived, and it'll have a course over about two weeks, let's say. So the lymph node will grow, it will become noticeable, and then gradually shrink down to a normal size. If that hasn't happened and that lymph node is still palpable, and we say over something like four to six weeks, that's more concerning for something like an underlying malignancy. And we already talked about generalized lymphadenopathy, so lymph nodes that you can feel in more than one location is more concerning. Superclavicular location we talked about. If systemic symptoms are present, obviously, if your patient's coming in who's a, you know, 70-year-old male who has a 50-pack year smoking history, and they're coming in with cough, weight loss, and you palpate a supraclavicular node, putting all that information together is going to certainly raise a red flag for malignancy because of those systemic symptoms. And then lastly, males are more common than women as a risk factor for malignancy, at least in, in some retrospective studies. Well, and obviously we're talking about a different ballgame if a patient has generalized adenopathy versus a solitary node. So let's talk about solitary enlarged lymph nodes first. And from the approach of a primary care provider, You've gone through some of the questions we should ask, and we've talked about the physical exam findings of a benign node. Are there any laboratory tests we would consider for a solitary enlarged node? Like you mentioned, we'll get our whole history and then you'll know, do you have any of those red flags that are there or not? If it's a solitary lymph node, first thing I would do, even before testing, is just observe it for that good four weeks. If it's still present after that time, then I would start a workup. But again, knowing that you know, 98% of these lymph nodes are going to represent a reactive or benign cause, most of them will be gone within that period of time, and you've saved a workup for the patient. But let's say that the patient comes back and the lymph node is still there then a reasonable laboratory workup would include a CBC with a differential and a peripheral smear looking for any hematological abnormalities, ANA thinking of those autoimmune conditions, 
And then in terms of a infectious workup, obviously you'll do what you think is appropriate based on that, the history of the patient and your exam. But HIV, I think is one that um, sometimes can be missed, but HIV can certainly present with adenopathy that I've diagnosed patients with HIV based on a referral for adenopathy. Depending on your patient, it may be worthwhile doing a workup for TB. And then certainly um, Epstein-Barr virus or mononucleosis is a very common cause of cervical cervical lymphadenopathy, so a monospot would be appropriate. And then lastly, I'll say, because we're here in the upper Midwest, and so if it's summer or fall, you may want to look for tick-borne illnesses in the appropriate patient, and then also some fungal infections like histoplasmosis, and again, depending on your location. Well, I will share a mistake that I made regarding lymph nodes that I made early in my career. It was in a uh, about a 50-year-old woman who noted a uh, lump in her groin, and it was mildly tender, and it was, you know, movable and mildly, as I said, mildly tender. And uh, I was slightly concerned because of its size. It was a size, it was about uh, two and a half centimeters across. I assumed it was a reactive inguinal lymph node, and I brought her back in two, three weeks. Uh, hadn't changed, and uh, turned out this was a femoral hernia. Ah, mm-hmm. and uh, those things can feel very much like inguinal lymph nodes. And the inguinal area is a very common place, as you know, to uh, find enlarged lymph nodes. But uh, that's one that you uh, shouldn't miss, and hopefully others will learn by uh, by my mistake. Oh, absolutely. And you're right. The inguinal areas is the most common area in the body to have a reactive lymphadenopathy, particularly in the summer when many people are walking around barefoot because the inguinal lymph nodes really capture the drainage for the entire lower extremity and walking around barefoot outside, you know, it's very common to have some antigen presentation in that way and, and get some inguinal lymphadenopathy. If I may share one interesting cause uh, that's relatively new of uh, localized adenopathy, but this has been showing up on mammograms and other studies, is localized axillary lymphadenopathy in patients who have received the COVID-19 vaccine. So generally it's on the same side that the patient received the vaccine. So if it's a left deltoid, that patient very well could develop left axillary lymphadenopathy as part of that immune response. So question has been raised in women, should I avoid getting my mammogram then if I'm uh, within a couple weeks of receiving the COVID vaccine? And the official recommendation is no, you don't need to wait, but you may want to note when you're getting the mammogram that you have just received the vaccination and on which arm. That's very interesting. So just one more question we should ask uh, in our history especially this time of uh, year when uh, patients are getting uh, the immunizations. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into your field a bit. When should we suspect a lymphoma? What's characteristic about patients who end up having a lymphoma? Now, lymphoma is a very broad disease. There's over 60 different subtypes. And as you can imagine, with 60 different diseases, there's many different presentations. 
but the most common form of lymphoma is diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And that's an aggressive form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma that oftentimes presents with not just lymphadenopathy, but systemic symptoms as well. And these are characterized as B symptoms. So unexplained fevers, unexplained weight loss of 10% of the body weight. So it has to be pretty significant. And then drenching night sweats. They can happen during the day too, but they're more common at night. And these night sweats are really characterized by the need for the patient to change their pillowcase or change their pajamas or take a shower in the middle of the night. They're, they're quite dramatic. They're quite a bit different from the usual menopausal sweats or the sweats that we all get when we add on our winter blanket in the fall. Uh, so those symptoms are certainly things to watch out for or think about uh, lymphoma in, in your differential diagnosis. The second most common form of lymphoma is follicular lymphoma, and that's one that is a slow-growing lymphoma and, and often can present with uh, no systemic symptoms, but just slow-growing lymphadenopathy that sometimes can wax and wane even. Those lymph nodes can grow and shrink on their own without any intervention. So somebody who comes in with a lymph node that they said, gosh, it's been there for a couple of years. And you think, well, that's probably benign, but then by size criteria, perhaps, or age of the patient or generalized lymphadenopathy, that may prompt you to get further workup, such as a biopsy. And then you'll see a follicular grade one to two non-Hodgkin lymphoma. The last thing I'll add is Hodgkin lymphoma is, is much more rare but it's one that I think we have to have a suspicion for because it happens in younger patients. And I've seen many patients where the diagnosis has not been made in a timely manner because, you know, you wouldn't be thinking malignancy in a 22-year-old, for example. But mediastinal mass patients oftentimes will have some of these B symptoms or a cough or shortness of breath. And other associated symptoms with Hodgkin can be unexplained pruritus that can be fairly severe. And one other very interesting one, which is unexplained pain in their lymph nodes when they drink alcohol. That's about 10, 15% of patients with a new diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma. So a very odd symptom, but if you hear that, think Hodgkin lymphoma. And then some of the patients with various hematologic malignancies can have an associated splenomegaly. And I remember when I was in medical school, my uh, advisor was a hematologist, and he always used to instruct us that when you're feeling for the spleen, start way down in the lower pelvis area and then come up, because otherwise some of these hematologic malignancies with a huge splenomegaly, you're going to miss the uh, bottom of the spleen. You're going to just go right on yeah. top Absolutely. That spleen can pass over the pelvic brim um, in some cases. Those generally are the, the myeloid disorders that cause that large of a spleen. But that being said, what I've learned in my career is that non-Hodgkin lymphoma can do whatever the heck it wants to do. Yeah. Well, let's say that you've come to the point where you need some uh, tissue for a pathologic diagnosis. Biopsy is indicated. Do you do a fine needle aspirate? Do you an excisional or can be either? Yeah, great question. We really prefer an excisional biopsy if the lymph node is palpable. And the reason is there's so much work that goes on behind the scenes in the laboratory to make that diagnosis. It's not just the morphology of how the cells look, but also some other tests, including genetic studies, flow cytometry, and others. So the pathologists really need a good piece of tissue in order to do their full workup. And then the other thing is that Hodgkin lymphoma, for example, 
has very few malignant cells. The vast majority of the cells causing that adenopathy are reactive cells that get recruited by those Reed-Sternberg malignant Hodgkin lymphoma cells. So if you don't have a good piece of tissue, the pathologist could potentially miss the malignant cell and make it pretty difficult. So if there's something that's palpable, we want an excisional lymph node biopsy. If a patient doesn't have anything palpable, let's say that adenopathy is found incidentally on a uh, CT scan of the abdomen that was done for a different reason, but the lymph nodes are of the size that you're concerned, then we'd ask for a core needle biopsy CT guided rather than a fine needle aspirate. Well, Carrie, let's summarize our discussion. Uh, Could you give us maybe two or three key points that you think are important regarding lymphadenopathy? Yeah, thanks. I'd love to. I think the first key point that every primary care physician should keep in mind is that the vast majority of patients presenting with lymphadenopathy are going to have a benign cause, 98%. And there's many different causes of that adenopathy. We talked about infection, autoimmune disease, medications, sarcoidosis, et cetera. Second key point is if there's no systemic symptoms, it's perfectly reasonable to observe enlarged lymph nodes for at least two weeks, maybe up to four weeks before going to a workup, including laboratory studies or a biopsy. And then my last point is the one we just talked about, that when biopsy is indicated, an excisional biopsy is always preferred over a needle biopsy if an excisional biopsy is possible. Well, we've been discussing lymphadenopathy with Dr. Carrie Thompson, a hematologist from the Mayo Clinic. Carrie, great interview. Thank you for sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you for the opportunity. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.